The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Gia Kokotakis with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for June 19, 2023. This week at Lawfare, our coverage focused on the historic federal indictment of former President Donald Trump in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents investigation. It is the culmination of a long history of investigations of the former president, the first of which was the Mueller investigation back in 2017. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from April 2019 in which Benjamin Wittes sat down with Bob Bauer, Susan Hennessy, Mary McCord, Paul Rosenzweig, and Charlie Savage to discuss the Mueller report, what it says about obstruction and collusion, Mueller's legal theories, and what this all means for the president and the presidency. You can read Lawfare's coverage of Trump's most recent federal indictment at lawfareblog.com. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast Special Edition, April 19th, 2019. You can't guess why we're here. I'm, it's just uh, one of these mysteries. No, I'm joking. The Mueller report, as you know, dropped yesterday. We have only had it for 24 hours. We've all spent a lot of quality time with it. We're going to spend a lot more quality time with it over the next Uh, days, weeks, and months, but we are ready to have an initial conversation about it. In the Jungle Studio, I am here with Mary McCord of Georgetown Law and formerly acting head of the National Security Division at Justice, Susan Hennessy, who needs no introduction to Lawfare listeners. Joining us by phone, former White House counsel Bob Bauer, and from Costa Rica, Paul Rosenzweig, and uh, a special guest, New York Times reporter Charlie Savage, who happens to be in Costa Rica with Paul Rosenzweig reading the Mueller report. Welcome, everybody. All right, we've got a huge amount of material to cover, so let's just get started. Um, Susan, what is, you know, for you, the Mueller report in one short takeaway paragraph? For me, in one short takeaway paragraph, it is um, no conspiracy, lots of collusion. Uh, And it is obstruction of justice, but the president is not indictable while in office. Um, That's my one sentence version of it. 
on the cons- on the collusion conspiracy side in particular, which is getting a little bit less attention in part because the implications of the obstruction fact pattern and analysis, I think, are um, are so immense and so consequential. But, you know, just to sort of pause a minute on what this report says about what occurred in the 2016 election, which is not just establishing the conspiracy on the Russian side to interfere with the election in order to help Trump, but pervasive knowledge and awareness of those efforts by Trump and individuals associated with his campaign, that they welcomed those efforts, that they not only failed to warn the American people, but actually developed a campaign and messaging strategy that sought to capitalize on those illicit efforts, Um, and that every element of sharing a common purpose and working towards that purpose, and that purpose being a profoundly wrong one, was there, the only element that was missing was the technical meeting of the minds, the actual agreement necessary for conspiracy. And so the lack of that element, which of course is significant whenever you're thinking about criminal charging uh, decisions, I actually think masks uh, a lot of the profoundly disturbing underlying conduct. All right. So my next question is, to anybody who disagrees in any significant or fundamental way with Susan's top line, uh, one brief paragraph account of the Mueller report, does does that sound like a a, a plausible one to you all, or or would somebody offer a different one in its place? So I don't disagree that there's. Uh a significant amount of profoundly disturbing uh, information in part one of the report. I guess I think it, it, from a criminal law perspective, having spent most of my career as a criminal prosecutor, the absence of that agreement really is the sine qua non of, of conspiracy. And so um, it's clear no one could come away from reading this report without feeling like members of the Trump campaign and Trump himself encouraged, welcomed, were very interested in, delighted in almost the Russian um, election interference efforts, but never, never were able to make, you know, connect the dots between we really like what you're doing and want it to happen and the Russians who were actually engaged in it. And um, so what I think is important for readers and for the American voters to pay attention to is, you know, not only the vulnerability of our election systems and the fact that Russia is going to keep on doing what it what it did in the past, and we all need to be smarter about where we get our information, and our private sector needs to be smarter about the way you know internet service platforms and social media is used, and and all of that, but also that. Um, you know how do how do people feel about a a campaign and a president who so welcomed uh, efforts by a foreign adversary, um, formidable foreign adversary, to uh, affect the results of the election? May I raise the flag here briefly on the campaign finance issue? Uh, I thought that Mueller disposed of that incorrectly. I understand the analysis. I understand why he came to the conclusion that he did. But I don't think that it is an entirely satisfactory analysis. And it's one of the points in the report where, for example, inciting constitutional constraints, the Trump campaign and the 
persons involved in welcoming emissaries from Moscow promising dirt on Hillary Clinton got more than their share of the benefit of the legal and constitutional doubt. Okay, so back up, Bob, and and uh, walk us through what the other Bob um, uh, concluded there and why you think there is a defect in the campaign finance uh, analysis. The statute in question is unambiguous. It is broad. Congress uh, amended it several times, most recently in 2003, to tighten it. And it prohibits soliciting or accepting any support whatsoever in cash or in kind from a foreign national. End of story. So it's bizarre that there was some question about whether this was some you know, piece of the law that the participants in this meeting somehow didn't understand. They didn't recognize that it was a campaign finance issue. That analysis was even extended to Paul Manafort, who's been around presidential campaigns for decades. It struck me as surpassingly odd. And then there was a series of analytic points about whether you really can value the information they were offering, whether certain financial thresholds in the statutes had been exceeded that I think are open to a very reasonable dispute. And then last but not least, there was some question about you know, whether or not a, a finding here could be sustained in the face of constitutional objections. And I, I think of all of the areas in which the constitutional objections wind up being, shall we say, less powerful, this area for national support is is certainly one of them. So it was, to me, a, a somewhat frustrating analysis. I don't question that it's an alternative reading of the law, but it is yet another way in which the constitutional doubts at every stage uh, were resolved in Donald Trump and his campaign's favor. And I, I should mention one other point, which is, had they not wished to indict on the campaign finance charges, the individual participants in the senior staff in that meeting, the campaign itself could have been indicted. And that was a route that apparently the special counsel didn't consider. I mean, and that would not, by the way, run up against the OLC opinions in any way, immunizing the president from illegal exposure. Paul, you wanted to jump in? Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted, I, I, I'm always reluctant to disagree even in the least bit with Susan and Mary, uh, but I think that they understate the degree to which an agreement between the Trump campaign and the Russian uh, intelligence services has already been proven. Uh, agreements don't need to be explicitly proven. They can be inferred from patterns of conduct, and they don't need to be convert, covert. They can be as overt as uh, one person saying, hey, uh, Ben, I'd really like it if you gave me some email, and then Ben giving me an email. Uh, that would be a circumstance from which we could infer that there was, in fact, a meeting of minds between you and I. Uh, the way I, I've phrased it uh, in talking about it to friends is, if this were a white-collar case uh, involving somebody other than the president and we were on the same set of facts, I don't think there'd be any reluctance to have inferred the actual agreement uh, that was more than just kind of conscious parallelism, but a an actual meeting of the minds as to an objective to be achieved. And I think that it's highly likely that it, yeah, in front of a neutral finder of fact, in a white-collar context devoid of politicization, that the prosecution would win that case 
eight times out of ten. So, so you're just just to be clear, you're uh, you're suggesting that in fact Mueller is understating the. Uh, availability of evidence of conspiracy that, and w- when he says we did not establish it, you're suggesting he's interpreting his evidence extremely conservatively? Extremely conservatively requiring uh, ex- uh, explicit direct evidence of an agreement where inferential uh, uh, circumstantial evidence would normally suffice and uh, 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 consistent with what uh, Bob has just said, kind of uh, institutionalizing his view and breaking the tie in favor of the president uh, when in, in, you know, to the extent there's a tie, when in most cases the prosecutorial function is to let that decision be made by a grand jury and a jury. Uh, I mean, I get why he does that politically, but as a practical matter, in terms of, of raw uh, compliance or noncompliance with the criminal law, I could make out this case as a conspiracy and charge it, and I think I'd have more than enough to survive, for example, a a Rule 29 motion to dismiss. Mary? Yeah, so, you know, putting aside uh, the example Bob gave of the campaign finance violation related to the the June uh, meeting at Trump Tower, just going off of of Paul's description of even if you publicly make a statement sort of asking for emails to be be published, you could infer an agreement there. I think it's also important to keep in mind here something, frankly, that Attorney General Barr said at his press conference, which is that the mere publication of non-classified, non- defense information, emails, uh, even if there was an agreement to publish those, you know, may not actually, I mean, the publication itself, of course, is not illegal. Now, you might have a conspiracy to defraud the U.S. government under 371, um, you know, that more could be probed on. But, you know, I think there's a lot of different aspects of the Russian interference and which part we're talking about there potentially being evidence of agreement uh, in is important because some would cl- obviously if there was agreement uh, with respect to somebody in the Trump campaign working with uh, or providing any kind of tools or tricks or tips to anybody in the Russian government to actually engage in the hacking, kind of the way Assange provided or offered or tried to provide uh, password cracking uh, mechanisms to Chelsea Manning in order to access a classified computer system. If there's that kind of agreement, then that's that's one thing, which is different, I think, from encouraging in a very, very public way, uh, Russia, if you're out there, you know, it'd be great to uh, put out some more emails and find Hillary Clinton's emails. Especially because the emails that he was talking about in that speech were the the supposedly missing 30,000 emails from her private server, not the ones that were stolen from John Podesta or the DNC. Or So uh, I, I actually uh, am surprised, Paul, to hear you uh, suggest that the evidence of conspiracy is stronger than Mueller allows because I'm I, I'm actually a bit skeptical of that. Um, but I want to I want to bring Charlie in and get a sense, Charlie, of your um, your overall takeaway when you look at the big picture of this report. What do you What do you think the story is? Well, so far this conversation is focused on Volume One, the collusion chapter, and not the uh, obstruction component. Uh, 
I think that we kind of knew going into yesterday that uh, uh, we were looking at a, a situation in which there was overtly in public view, we all knew about the, either it had been reported or it happened in public, that there was a lot of sort of complicit looking conduct. We knew from bars. Um, maybe problematic summary last month that it, Mueller had decided it had fallen short of uh, a, a con criminal conspiracy with an agreement, explicit or tacit, at least in his view. But the the mystery going, and that now we have lots more detail, and history will have that to look back at uh, decades from now. To me, the most interesting part, and maybe this can serve as a transition, was the obstruction side answering or solving the mystery that Barr's letter had left open of why Mueller did not uh, perform a prosecutorial determination of whether or not Trump committed uh, a crime, a crime of obstruction. And the, the takeaway being that he, Mueller was leaving open the possibility that after Trump is no longer the sitting president, uh, he thought future prosecutors could look at the evidence that he had gathered and decide then whether to charge ex-President Trump with a crime. He wanted to leave that open temporarily, and that's what he was up to. And Barr thwarted that by claiming in his letter that Trump's uh, – sorry, that uh, Mueller's uh, then inexplicable decision not to make that judgment had left it to him as attorney general to fill the vacuum – and pronounced Trump cleared now, notwithstanding constitutional issues about indicting a sitting president. But that was a really extraordinary intervention, and the, the obstruction section of the report was filled with breadcrumbs toward the conclusion that Trump probably did commit obstruction of justice, and it was just premature to say that out loud. Uh, I just found that fascinating. So before we move on to, to sort of the, the obstruction discussion, I do want to make one larger point on sort of the, the points that uh, Paul and Mary were making. And that's, uh, Paul, I agree that there are clearly parts of the, there are, there are clearly parts of this in which there are, there is a clear meeting of, of the minds, just not towards a criminal end. And then there are clear criminal ends in which they both support it, right? So the meeting of the minds not towards a criminal end, the Trump Tower Moscow sort of conversations and discussions, that element clearly exists. It's just, and it's deeply improper. It's just not a crime. Then there's the, there's sort of the hacking campaign where clearly the Trump campaign is, is at least notionally aware of what's going on, but we don't actually see the agreement. The area in which, and actually if you look at page 176 of volume one on the report, almost all of the pages redacted, and this is the discussion related to declinations of, of why they're not charging. Um, and there's a, there's a footnote discussion that's not redacted in 12, uh, footnote 1278 that talks about the office considered but ruled out charges on a theory that post-hacking, sharing, and dissemination of emails could consider trafficking of stolen property. So I think it's relatively clear that, the, uh, that that's a footnote to a discussion about legal theories about whether or not post-hacking hacking dissemination 
and the clear meeting of the minds that a, that that my, that, that uh, the report seems to lay out, whether or not that could provide the basis where you have both the existence of the agreement and also the existence of a criminal charge, and that's that's one of the most sort of um, uh, fascinating areas of, of redaction where I think uh, that's where Mueller lays out. Oh, his specific reasoning uh, on on not thinking that the the agreement and crime elements are met in the same place. So, Bob, uh, if we're turning to uh, to obstruction, I I want to uh, come back to a recurrent issue that you have spoken about on this podcast in the past, which is. Uh, you know, the fascinating character of Don McGahn. And, uh, and you know, one thing this report does, uh, volume two, that is, is it gives a, a just dramatic amount of new information about his behavior as White House counsel. And a, a lot of it is, frankly, you know, more flattering than a lot of the prior times that we have had occasion to talk about him. So I'm interested for your, uh, as part of our sort of ongoing, you know, uh, uh, former White House counsel scratches head about Don McGahn series, what, what's the Don McGahn story in, in, in volume two here? Volume two shows that McGahn um, understood pretty quickly that he was going to be met with presidential demands that were wholly inappropriate or would tend to implicate the president and him if he acquiesced in them to legal exposure. There's been a lot of attention to his refusal to execute the order to fire Mueller or to see the DOJ fired Mueller. A little less attention to the president's attempt to have him create a false record in the White House counsel's office files to substantiate the lie that he had not ordered McGahn to fire Mueller. So that's quite remarkable. The White House counsel is asked by the president not merely to lie, but to create a false record in support of the lie. Now, in that, in a number of other instances, McGahn uh, either waits the president out or in the more dramatic moment related in the report, he threatens to resign. Interestingly, there's no face-to-face conversation between him and the president to resolve that issue. So the relationship is a extraordinary one in the history of White House counsels. If you set aside John Dean for a moment, who wound up testifying, cooperating with law enforcement authorities against President Nixon, this is one for the books. All right. So one of the things that I was really struck by was the degree to which the president is protected uh, to some degree against criminal exposure by his wildly ineffective, wild ineffectiveness in managing the executive branch. He orders all these things to happen in a fashion that had they happened, I don't think anybody would have been doubting today that he had engaged in, a, in, a, in an obstructive act. But people kind of wait him out or, as, as you described, just kind of don't respond uh, or uh, just don't do it or refuse. Uh, and that's, you know, from the level of the FBI director and the attorney general to the level of pretty, you know, uh, mid-level White House staff, as well as outside advisors like Corey Lewandowski, who just can't kind of be troubled to call the attorney general and put pressure on him to unrecuse. And so, uh, Mary, I'm curious, do you think 
the the ultimate reason that we are not seeing a clear conclusion that the president obstructed justice is that the executive branch is so non-unitary that just as he can't withdraw from a trade agreement because somebody will slip the document off his desk, he can't obstruct justice because no one will carry it out for him. No, uh, and that's because you can obstruct justice or attempt to obstruct justice. You don't have to... uh, succeed in obstructing justice to be chargeable with a criminal offense. Right. No. So to be clear, I'm not saying that he doesn't meet the statutory uh, uh, elements on this basis. I'm saying it has a completely different tonal inflection because so many of these things don't actually happen that even Mueller writes in the thing, you know, actually most of these orders weren't carried out. Um, you know, and, and and so the stakes feel way lower than they would if somebody had actually gone ahead and done the thing. I, I actually think that Mueller um, took some some real care in his report to uh, reject the notion that the stakes are lower because of that. I mean, there's no question that if he'd really obstructed justice, we might not even be at the point of having this report because he would have been successful in firing Mueller and maybe no one would have replaced him and we wouldn't be reading this today. So clearly that you know, from that perspective, the stakes would have been higher. But, you know, on one on page 158 of, of volume two, uh, Mueller sets out exactly what you were just talking about, that the president's efforts were mostly unsuccessful, but that is largely because the people who surrounded him declined to carry out his orders. But, the, but uh, Mueller goes on to make it clear that the president, particularly after he knew that he himself was personally under investigation as of June 14th, 2017, he engaged in a series of targeted efforts to control the investigation and recounts these, you know, attempting to remove the special counsel, seeking to have AG Sessions unrecuse himself and limit the investigation, seeking to prevent public disclosure of information about the Trump Tower meeting uh, between Russians and campaign officials and using, you know, every possible public forum to attack potential witnesses uh, who might have adverse against uh, information against him, and certainly then privately doing it as well. So I think that, I, and I think by the sheer volume of evidence recounted in, you know, more than well over 150 pages of, of volume two, I think Mueller's trying to tell us this is what happened. It is important. It is significant. And 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 he was leaving that roadmap we, we talked about earlier. Yeah, I also think this report reflects uh, to the degree to which the president was successful. There are important questions that the Mueller team wasn't able to answer. And it's reasonable to attribute their inability to answer those questions to the president's obstructive efforts. Right. So whether or not the president was aware of the substance of Michael Flynn's phone call with Sergei Kislyak before or after, Right. The Mueller team talks about kind of trying to construct this. Trump is taught. It tries to tell Katie uh, McFarlane, tries to convince her to write a memo saying that she didn't tell him about it. She says she can't do that. They appear to have some sort of conflicting testimony. They say we couldn't establish this. Ditto for whether or not Trump had knowledge about the June 9th Trump Tower meeting. Some testimony on either side. Big, uh, big sort of redaction for grand jury and, and ongoing uh, matters material redactions. Uh, you know, and so I think that there is, you know, 
Oh, and additionally, the president never sat down and, and agreed to an interview uh, and said that he did not recall in more than 30 instances on his written answers and refused to answer any questions related to obstruction of justice. And so there's a lot of places in which the Mueller report is quite explicit that there are persistent questions that they just weren't able to answer. And for a great many of those, the but for causation or, or the proximate cause of it is what the president was doing to prevent that answer from from coming to light. I, I, you know, that's not unusual, though, in the sense that usually uh, prosecutors don't have the opportunity to target to disc- to uh, interview the targets or subjects of their investigation. So I totally agree that a lot of that precluded um, the special counsel from getting answers to certain questions. But prosecutors are used to that sort of uh, inhibition because they they you know, it's it's they're used to having to build their case of intent based on circumstantial evidence and not have the benefit of, a, of an actual interview. Sure, so, yeah. although they're certainly not used to not having the full cooperation of, say, somebody like Paul Manafort, who's accepted a plea deal because somebody has dangled the, the possibility of a pardon. Charlie, when you look at this uh, report, I mean, you've followed the obstruction investigation and allegations as closely as anybody, except perhaps your colleague Mike Schmidt, um, I did you read this document and say, "Wow, this record is fundamentally much worse than we had understood"? Did you read it and say, "This is filling out a whole lot of detail that we already knew," but the 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 essential allegations are largely a matter of putting on the record what had been in a bunch of news stories, particularly in the New York Times, about, uh, you know, sourced uh, anonymously. Uh, By the way, the New York Times reporting on obstruction looks really, really good after the release of this document. That's a, you know, an aside. But, or did you look at it and say it's kind of somewhere in between? There's you know, the the basic guideposts were already there, but there's sort of more than detail added. There's some things that are qualitatively different. Like, how, how much did you learn? That's an interesting way you put the, the question. I mean, certainly there were a few more episodes that had not existed in the public domain in, in any form. The Corey Lewandowski one that was mentioned earlier, for example, trying to get him to pressure Sessions to unrecuse. Uh, uh, but I think that most of the obstruction stuff, the actual episodes, we did know about. Of course, a lot of that reporting was followed by denunciations from Trump world that it was all fake news. There was these sources didn't exist. It was all made up. And so it's nice to have it confirmed with based on, you know, a, a investigation armed with subpoenas and grand jury testimony and all the rest and uh, that it, all that stuff actually did happen. And as well as in witness interviews where it would be a felony to lie to the uh, special counsel as opposed to lying to the public and reporters. And so uh, on behalf of my colleagues like Mike and Maggie, who are the at the core of covering the collusion, uh, sorry, the obstruction side of it, I, I, I thank you for the compliment of their reporting. Moving out of this, or to, to reiterate or amplify what I said earlier, I think the most, beyond seeing that, that is, all that stuff was real and really did happen, 
the the takeaway for me was why did Mo, why did Mueller not make a decision and the obvious uh, implication of his work that he thought that uh, a, a couple years from now or whenever it is that Trump is no longer president, prosecutors should be in a position to look at this thorough evidence he gathered and then render a decision about whether to indict ex-president Trump, a plan that may have been too clever by half, uh, given that the attorney general then seized that opening to try to close that door. Although there's nothing uh, uh, as as uh, uh, happened in when the Bush administration went out and the Obama administration came in and Eric Holder ordered a whole bunch of interrogation cases reopened and reexamined. There's nothing that precludes a subsequent administration from uh, from reopening that, although it, it would be uh, unusual and arguably irregular. So, Paul, you have uh, uh, criticized Mueller on this point, uh, and I am inclined to defend him on this point. Uh, so let's let's spar a little bit. Make the case that this was uh, a, an inappropriate punt on Mueller's part. Well, I'm not going to make the case that Mueller should have indicted the president. Uh, that clearly was precluded by DOJ policy, and he's a creature of the department. And I, I've said for over a year and a half that he wasn't going to indict the president. But failing to reach a conclusive judgment about whether or not this was a prosecutable case or not, or even worse, failing to even try. If he tried and said I, the evidence is in equipoise, I wouldn't have a complaint either. But what he did was he explicitly said, I'm not going to answer one of the two most important questions that I've been asked. The first is, were crimes committed in connection with Russia's interference in the election? He answered that one. And we've already talked about why I think he might have answered it wrong, but at least he answered it. And then he simply declined to answer that question with respect to the president, which in effect was a declaration by Mueller that the president can only be exonerated. He can never be condemned, even in instances in which uh, he is deserving of condemnation. And his reasoning was exclusively prudential, right? Once you get past the can't indict, the reason for not drawing a conclusion as to criminality were the prudential ones of you know, unfairness to the subject. And that's a real concern, but it's much less in the case of a president who A, has a bully pulpit from which he can answer, and B, uh, whose conduct is, uh, is a fit and important subject for consideration by the American people who ought to be uh, on the other side, given the opportunity to make a judgment about Trump and his fitness for office, informed by the expertise of Mueller in answering the very question that he's been asked and which, which he was tasked with asking. Um, so I think that in protecting the presidency and saying that a president should not be publicly condemned, he advanced the institution of the president at the expense of uh, informing the public about the actions of this particular president. And while that might even have been a sensible judgment in normal cases, Trump is not a normal president. I'm sorry. So just a, a, a quick thought here. I think it's, when I said earlier that I think what Mueller did was too clever by half, 
not just because it left an opening for Barr to intervene in a way that Mueller apparently did not anticipate. The other piece of that, in my mind, is I don't believe Mueller when he says he didn't perform a traditional prosecutorial analysis because he also said that if the facts had clear, been clearer to exonerate Trump of obstruction, he would have said that. He was willing to say that, he, and he just couldn't because the facts raised difficult issues that prevented him from saying the president did not commit obstruction. And that means he went through the facts and the law in his head and decided that the president uh, could not be exonerated by the evidence he had gathered. And therefore, when he then says, I didn't do a prosecutorial analysis, he's not really being candid because he, what he's saying is, I just don't want to utter the opposite words, which is uh, the president did commit a prosecutable offense, even though I am saying that I know the president did not not commit one. That's my point. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I 
found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Bob, um, do, you, do you think Mueller's just being coy here? And do you think uh, Paul and Paul's critique and and... Charlie's related critique have merit, or is there more to be said for what Mueller did than that? Mueller was operating within what I think we see in the most recent iteration is a broken system for assuring presidential accountability under the law. Let's take the special counsel regulations from the top. Paul's view was this was a public interest matter, yet under those regulations, a very specific decision was made with the acquiescence of Congress that the special counsel was to essentially stick to his criminal law knitting and not, for example, express judgments that were essentially impeachment related judgments. And that and it was not even to report publicly anything. He was to report only to the attorney general on a confidential basis. The second point, and here I would be critical of Mueller, but I think this is at the bottom, again, sources back to a problem with the system. The OLC opinions immunizing the president from criminal liability while in office have caused no end of trouble. In this case, and this we can talk about also when we get to Bob Barr's version of what Mueller said. In this case, Mueller says that he is, on the basis of that opinion, very reluctant to express a judgment about the president's criminal conduct if the president cannot be tried and cannot defend himself in public. And that is a direct result of his coming up against what he thinks are the constitutional issues. And I happen to think they're bogus in the two OLC opinions on this point. And I think he got boxed in by that. And I'm not quite sure the execution, how he addressed that was particularly deft. And the last point I want to make is this. And this is sort of, I think, where the OLC opinion got him or sort of the cul-de-sac in which it landed him. 
I think there was both this set of constitutional prudential considerations, and then he left it very muddy. Was that really what the problem was, or was it really a jump ball on the question of prosecutorial judgment here? And he left you with the impression that he's arguing both, that he really can't reach a judgment here because it's inconsistent with his responsibilities given the OLC opinion, yet he also leaves you with the impression that it's a somewhat mixed factual picture and the decision could have been exercised both ways. And yet after all that, he says, but if I did not believe that the president had committed a crime of obstruction, I would have clearly said so. It's a very muddled record. Yeah, I, I actually think it was more than a reluctance to reach the uh, uh, an actual prosecutorial recommendation because he seems pretty clearly to say, given his role as an attorney in the Department of Justice and under the framework of the special counsel regulations, which, of course, require him to submit what is a traditional prosecution memo that either recommends or uh, a prosecution or recommends a declination of prosecution, uh, that he felt, and he says, this office accepted OLC's legal conclusion for the purpose of exercising prosecutorial jurisdiction. So I, 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 I read that as I can't uh, reach the ultimate conclusion of whether a crime was committed because I am bound by this OLC opinion, which although technically, of course, only implies to the actual indictment, everything within it, and obviously we can criticize it as you have, Bob, uh, would lead to the conclusion that he also couldn't uh, make that recommendation, although he clearly invokes some prudential reasons for that. I think that everything else you see about this report suggests very much that, I mean, he dispenses with the statutory defenses. Uh, He dispenses with the constitutional defenses. He analyzes for every one of the 11 episodes how the three prongs uh, of the three elements of obstruction would apply, obstructive act, nexus to, uh, you know, an official proceeding or pending or anticipated, and corrupt intent. And he does, to me, he does every single thing except say for each one of those episodes, therefore, uh, I recommend uh, charging on this crime, uh, for this crime. So, you know, and and I actually still can't say I've read every single word of every single factual uh, scenario that he recounts. But the very fact that he even applied the three elements, you know, an analysis of the three elements to the facts shows me he went, you know, like nine point nine steps the way and just not that last tenth. I, I mean, the other thing that, you know, he has ten, he offers ten different examples of potential obstructive conduct. And on some of those, he does offer mixed fact and mixed law, right? Is firing Comey, uh, you know, is that within the article two? That's, a, that's maybe a difficult question. On his public sort of witness intimidation of Michael Cohen, uh, you know, can public, you know, re- resolving the public comments, it's unusual, but it's not in possible. But then there are other elements in which, you know, Mueller goes through, he articulates the meeting of all of the statutory elements, he refutes any defense, and then he doesn't say anything else. So yes, there's mixed questions of facts and law on some of the elements, but it's pretty clear Trump's efforts to get Jeff Sessions to unrecuse himself 
was not within there's that's not a legitimate article to function none of the defenses were sort of relevant to that point his efforts to get Don McGahn to lie about whether or not uh, he had instructed McGahn to to instruct sessions to fire Mueller that's not within the article to uh, sort of function that doesn't raise difficult questions of law in fact so it's clear that yes for some buckets here there potentially there's a close call but there are at least two or three of these in which at least taking Mueller's report on its face, he offers an articulation of the meeting of every statutory element, and he doesn't offer any suggestion that he believes the facts or the law are complicated on the question. All right. So I want to defend Bob Mueller against this onslaught of of attacks from from Paul, uh, from Charlie, and uh, and and the depersonalization and institutionalization of it from from Bob. Um, look, uh, first of all, I agree with Mary that this is I don't think he looking at the text of this, he presents this as a um, as a as a prudential judgment. I think he presents it as a point of principle. Number one, he is bound by the OLC opinion. Uh, number two, given that he is bound by the OLC opinion and can't issue an indictment, it is inappropriate to make a judgment as to whether he would issue an indictment if he was uh, free to do so. Uh, and if you're not going to indict somebody, you have no business, as a general matter, commenting on whether they committed crimes. Uh, number two, um, I think we need to talk about the Jaworski roadmap here because uh, in page one and two of the uh, introduction to the document, he makes clear that one of the prudential factors that he is considering is deference to the congressional process by which under that OLC opinion, uh, you know, we're supposed to be evaluating uh, presidential misconduct. Now, Bill Barr at his press conference yesterday said that he didn't think Mueller was deferring to Congress, and he certainly hoped he wasn't because uh, the executive branch has its own functions and shouldn't be doing Congress's work for it. But if you look at what Bob Mueller says Bob Mueller was doing, there is a substantial element of deference to Congress. And so I think the at the best way to understand what Bob Mueller does said here is, I am not able to indict the president. Therefore, I am not going to uh, go through an exercise in which I do uh, a, a sort of shadow indictment uh, that you know makes the accusation in a form that I actually have no authority to make. Number three, I am going to create a do a full investigation. So if when he's out of office, somebody else wants to indict him, that option is available. And along the way, I'm going to create a detailed factual record so that Congress can do its job. Um, and I don't know that I think that that is I mean, I certainly think there is a plausible set of arguments that that's a pretty good way to thread this particular needle. And a number of months ago, when we were all sitting around here thinking, how should Bob Mueller play this? You know, I said, 
gosh, you know, there's this Jaworski roadmap and here's how he did it. And I bet this is kind of got to be on Bob Mueller's mind at this point. And that's sort of what animated me to try to, you know, go into court and get that document. And I think there's a lot of that in the actual disposition of it. And I want to I want to say I think there's something to it, to be honest. I mean, I I do think that one thing that is clear here is that this was all exacerbated or the negative features of this were all exacerbated by Barr's intervention. And Barr Great transition, because I was just going to say we need to talk about Bill Barr. Right. And and Barr inserting his gloss. And so, um, you know, uh, Charlie, I sort of kick this question to you. You know, you had a a really great piece uh, in The New York Times this morning that's really just laying out side by side, you know, Barr's presentation versus it, the actual uh, what Mueller's sort of document said and what those sentences said in context, to my mind, um, I'm comfortable saying I think Bill Barr lied. I don't know that if he was under oath, you could convict him on perjury, kind of a lie, but a lie in in every other sense of the term. And so I, I'm curious from your perspective, having kind of done the exercise, am I am I being unfair to Bill Barr to think that? So I certainly would not say that this rises to the level of Bill Barr lying. I think that, you know, much of what he said was literally true. And what was interesting, what you're referring to is uh, at the suggestion of Paul here sitting next to me, actually, yesterday, I took every quoted passage from the famous Barr letter to Congress last month in which he drew on an excerpt from the a fragmentary excerpt from the then still secret Mueller report to bolster his uh, portrayal of the bottom line findings of the Mueller investigation in that four-page letter to Congress. I took those sentences, you know, none of them, your listeners may recall, were complete sentences and none of them disclosed the context in which those phrases had come, come from. And I found in the report the actual paragraphs and sort of put them side by side. And what arises from that exercise is the, a pattern, and the pattern is that uh, the, the words were omitted by Mr. Barr or the context was omitted that really took the meaning of what Mueller was doing it, uh, and, and twisted it in a, in a misleading way. And so, for example... Uh, he has a sentence fragment about how the special counsel did not find evidence of uh, a, a criminal conspiracy or a coordination with Congress, uh, sorry, with Russia and the Trump campaign. And he uses that to say, well, there was no uh, crime here that Trump was trying to cover up. Therefore, we can infer that his intent was not corrupt. And that's part of why I, Bill Barr, am, am proclaiming that Trump is cleared of obstruction of justice. And when you looked at that, phrase about no did not establish uh, a, a coordination between the campaign and Russia. It's embedded in a paragraph in which Mueller is explaining that while the evidence he found did not rise to you know, proving beyond a reasonable doubt that there was that, there's all kinds of other reasons why Trump may have had a motive to obstruct justice, like covering up personal embarrassment or the notion that, uh, that his election was illegitimate or that there may have been some other crimes committed. And and so to use that phrase as showing that there was no intention uh, could have could have been no intention for obstruction when it came from a place 
which was all about how nevertheless there were lots of potential motives for obstruction, is really turning what Mueller was doing on its head. And there are many other examples of that I won't laboriously march through, but basically every single one of these, you look at it in context and you're like, wow, that's not really what Mueller was doing or saying or trying to convey there. And these words uh, Barr was using, uh, you know, he was putting them toward his own purpose in, in crafting this uh, quite interesting and now questionable letter to Congress. But all that said, uh, and, and, and it raises questions about Barr's wisdom, because he knew he was going to put this report out in a few weeks, and that surely people were going to compare the quotes he was uh, using in March to the actual report, and that his credibility would then come under scrutiny. So I don't, I don't know what to make of that. That doesn't. But uh, all that said, I still would not. I think myself say that it rises to the level of lying. Okay, so I want to talk about Bill Barr um, and specifically I want to start by asking whether anybody either remotely or in the studio uh, will say anything in defense of his press conference yesterday. Not a word. And actually, I am. I woke up yesterday morning prepared to give Bill Barr the benefit of the doubt. I actually think in terms of redactions, he appeared to have comported himself reasonably. Um, And after that press conference, I I am instinctively suspicious and skeptical not just of his future decisions, but am rethinking my prior analysis of his past decisions because it was such an aberration, so inappropriate, uh, so contrary to the values of the Department of Justice. Uh, it, it, it really alters my perception. Mary, you're, you, you, you are the person sitting across from me who most represents the values of the department. Um, uh, what do you make of it? Is there anything to be said in defense of it? Well, I, I thought what was really striking about it is that um, particularly when he got ready to introduce the subject of the obstruction part of the report, that he, he prefaced that with uh really what i can only say a personal defense lawyer would preface any um rep- any kind of press conference on which is that as trump came into office he was angry and frustrated that reporting about the russian interference might undermine the legitimacy of his le- election and he tried to paint this picture that 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 anger and frustration might have been sort of you know what led him to maybe say some things occasionally that he shouldn't have said, but that there was really nothing more to see here. And when the Department of Justice, first of all, it's unusual to do a press conference um, in a situation where you're not either announcing you know, some sort of new initiative or announcing an indictment. So here we're doing a press conference to, to announce a report that ends up you know, not recommending an indictment. So it's already a strange posture. But then to come in and sort of try to explain even more why color even more the narrative about what uh, people are about to see an hour later and and be able to read for themselves, I thought was was extraordinary. And I think um, 
uh, the point, you know, when we just back to Susan's point of, of, of whether Barr lied or not, moving away from the March letter to Congress, his answer to the question about whether the reason Mueller declined to um, make a finding of whether the president committed a crime of obstruction, whether that reason was based on the OLC memo, that came about as close to a lie, if not a lie, as you could get, because Barr, knowing what's what's in the report, nevertheless said that when he spoke to Mueller, um, Mueller said it was not he was not saying that but for the OLC opinion, he would have found a crime. And he made it clear he had not made the determination there was a crime. When you read the report, it seems abundantly clear, as we've just discussed, that at least the reason he didn't reach a conclusion was because of the OLC report. Bob, Paul, I, yes, do, do yes, you um, do do either of you have anything uh, to say in defense of the press conference? I can say something which I wouldn't characterize as a defense of bars. I, I thought, for example, his testimony on the spying point this last week in the middle of all of this was very ill-advised. But I have a somewhat different take, and that is I think that Barr is not so much in this to defend Trump as he is in it to defend a view, which I happen to disagree with, about executive branch prerogatives and immunities. I don't suppose he cares whether Donald Trump disappears and he never sees him again. But this is a consistent view he's taken. It motivated him to put the famous memo to the administration when he was not yet in office and under consideration for AG. I think he anticipated a strong spin. He's a hardcore Republican, a strong spin on the Democratic side. So he decided to give an advanced counterspin to neutralize it. And I also believe, and this I can't prove, that a lot of the anger at, at Barr is safer for people who are very angry or disappointed or frustrated with Mueller. That's interesting. Charlie? Uh, I just, you wanted some word of defense in the, of the press conference, and I thought that one thing that Barr said, uh, which we haven't talked about yet, was quite interesting, and you can't actually see it very well, what I'm about to say in the report, because it's so, this section is so heavily redacted, but it's important and insightful which was he addressed the question, or maybe he preemptively raised it, not uh, uh, about indicting or not indicting the campaign, not for collusion conspiracy with Russia, but for conspiracy with WikiLeaks. And there's a lot of redacted before a grand jury and ongoing matter uh, material in the report about the campaign's outreach to WikiLeaks. Obviously, there's the whole Jerome Corsi, Roger Stone, et cetera, stuff that is still unresolved. And Barr in, explained that uh, there's no, WikiLeaks broke no law by publishing the stolen Democratic emails if it did not participate in the crime of the underlying hacking. And no one has accused WikiLeaks and Assange of helping the Russian government hack the Democratic email servers. No one thinks that their skills would have been Required the Russians could do that on their own and did that before they had reached out to WikiLeaks. Unlike, say, the recent indictment of Assange for uh, purportedly agreeing to help Chelsea Manning try to uh, break into a defense classified network under a different username than her own, there was no participation in the underlying illegal conduct from which these files uh, came to be exfiltrated from their rightful owners. And so all kinds of con collusion and conspiracy in the non-legal sense 
with between the campaign and WikiLeaks would still not amount to indictable offense because you can't conspire to not break the law. Um, and I think that's very important and has gotten uh, uh, less attention than it should have, maybe in part because of the, 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 the redactions in the report that covered up those, that material. It also, it, and part of the reasons I think it's important and I consider it praiseworthy is because it shows that the Bar Justice Department uh, is continuing the traditional understanding that publishing information, uh, that, that one should be reluctant to try to make publishing information a crime. As a journalist, obviously, I have a vested interest in that norm being respected and not having uh, the Justice Department try to show that publishing information can be a crime under some circumstances. And also there's been some bad takes out there uh, for that this refutes. For example, uh, Andy McCarthy in the National Review wrote this long piece after the Assange indictment saying, well, why wasn't Assange indicted for uh, collusion with the Russians? This shows that the deep state just is afraid to put on trial uh, the evidence that Russia was involved in the hacking of the Democratic emails and the bar explanation that they broke no law if they merely received and published that information uh, convincingly shows why that was a dumb thing to build a column around in the National Review. So uh, just one other thought on the on the conference, and it's neither in support of nor, nor in condemnation, but a, a remarkable gap that is explained by its timing which is I think that the one thing that Barr really does have to answer for that he hasn't been asked yet is his independent judgment to exonerate the president on obstruction of justice. We've just spent a huge amount of time debating whether or not Mueller should have reached a judgment. And the premise of that discussion was the belief amongst, I think, everybody who was talking about it, even you, that had he reached such a judgment, Mueller's judgment would have been that the president committed indictable acts, and it's just because of the uh, prohibition that he wasn't indicted and that he com com committed impeachable acts as well, and acts for which he might face judgment post-presidency. So what is most puzzling to me out of uh, the bar gloss on the Mueller report, and it wasn't addressed in, in the press conference because we didn't know it was coming because we hadn't seen the report yet, is – what is the ground on which Barr reached a contrary prosecutorial conclusion against what seems to be such the great weight of evidence supporting the, the affirmative value of a prosecution, even if Mueller didn't want to say it? So I, that's a big gap, and I want to know. Although, Paul, it's kind of odd for you to both criticize Mueller for not making a judgment uh, as the essential task of a prosecutor and criticize Barr for then turning around and making the judgment. But I don't think he's it? I don't think he's saying he's I think he's saying Barr has not explained how exactly this set of facts allows him to reach a, a judgment that no crime was committed. Yeah, and why he and why he disagreed with Mueller's determination that this circumstance precludes prosecutorial judgment because of the unique nature of the presidency. Gotcha. All right, so I wanna I wanna wrap up uh, with one uh, additional question before we sort of do uh, uh, final thoughts. Um, Susan mentioned earlier that she thought the uh, uh, the actual redactions of the document were.
pretty creditable and that they weren't uh, uh, overly dramatic, didn't appear to have, uh, uh, you know, a political, particular political valence to them. Um, I look at them and I say most of them are quite minor. The, the ones that's doing all the work in terms of actual redaction space is pending matters. And that's presumably deals with evidence in the Roger Stone case that's going to come out. And there's very little grand jury information. And by the way, all the other redactions, Congress will be able to see the entire thing. So I am left uh, uh, being pretty unworried on the redaction front. And I'm wondering if any of you think that there is uh, uh, a, th this is a remaining major concern, and specifically, you know, the the Democratic uh, House Judiciary Committee today subpoenaed the entire document. They seem to be trying to go after the entire document. Is that the right fight for them to be having, Mary? So I, I think that if there had been more 6E material redacted, I expected that kind of fight, especially because there is an exception in 6E, at least uh, with respect to uh, national security, foreign intelligence information, and that the House might try to say that, you know, that exception would apply um, to, to that type of material. That would be different from obstruction, of course. So I... I I don't see anything about these redactions that strikes me as anyone taking an overly broad or, or, or unreasonable position on the redactions. I'm a little worried about, frankly, the subpoena to see the entire report when it includes seeing everything that relates to uh, ongoing matters, because for similar reasons that the Department of Justice doesn't share, you know, details of ongoing investigations with the White House, it also doesn't share details of ongoing criminal investigations with Congress. And there are some exceptions for national security investigations where Congress, particularly the intelligence committees, need to know some of the intelligence information to perform their job. Um, but if it's otherwise really all information about an ongoing criminal case that doesn't have those same sort of intelligence components, I do think that the department needs to be careful. And maybe maybe some of this is stuff that uh, does, I mean, it does appear mostly in the um, part one of the report, which has to do with the Russian election interference. But I do think that it's worth holding a line at not opening criminal prosecutorial and investigative files to Congress, um, you know, without good reason. Okay, so we got to wrap up, but does anybody fundamentally disagree with that and think that the redactions are a big problem that we need to that 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 is uh, worth big fight over? So I think there is one category. I, I largely agree with that. I think there is one set of redactions that I do have suspicions about, and that is that redacted under the category of harmful to ongoing materials appears to be conversations that would go to Donald Trump's personal individual knowledge of the Russian of the, of the Russian efforts, essentially. So paragraphs that start with Michael Cohen is in Donald Trump's office. Big redaction, final clause. Rick Gates and Donald Trump are driving to the car. There starts to be a discussion. Big redaction. Uh, last line says, Donald Trump says, OK. That's relevant and, and, uh, and important for us to know. And I'm suspicious of the motivation behind it. But ultimately, fighting over these redactions is a way of stalling the big question uh, that Congress does not want to confront, even uh, the Democrats in the House, which is the question of whether or not they need to move to impeachment inquiries. Bob, 
final thoughts. What happens next? Of course, there's going to be the testimony of Barr, there's going to be the testimony of Mueller. This is going to continue to be an issue. There may, in fact, be some reporting about what took place within the Mueller team and so forth. I do think long term, there is a fundamental breakdown like the one that was detected after Watergate that led to the independent counsel statute in the system of accountability for presidential misconduct. It has influenced all of the actors in this process. The answer was thought to lie in the current arrangement with the special counsel regulations. This episode reveals that that isn't working either. Charlie. No parting thoughts, but thanks for letting me participate as a, a guest lawfarer today. Thanks, Charlie. You're, you're an honorary lawfarer under, under all circumstances. Uh, Paul. It's a really shockingly depressing report. I mean, even if you leave out everything about President Trump that we've been talking about, the idea that Russia could, with such a really high degree of success, uh, disrupt the fundamental structure of the American electoral process and to this moment suffer no serious adverse consequences, you know, gets at the foundations of the idea of American democracy. And, you know, Donald Trump will, will pass from this scene at some point. Sooner or later, uh, whether or not the American democratic process can survive the assault of authoritarians in this era of social media is, is an open question and really disturbing to me. Susan. I think we are seeing, I think I agree, it is a shocking document. It describes shocking conduct on behalf of the president. I am... Um, unsettled to see the responses from both sides of Congress, which is Republicans circling the wagon and saying, essentially, you know, they're not going to do anything to hold the president of their own party accountable. I'm also uh, unsettled to see the reply, the response on the Democrat side, which seemed to be reducing the question of how to proceed to uh, pure political uh, judgments. What's going to serve them better in the presidential election? Uh, impeachment is an independent constitutional obligation, and, and I think they have... Uh, a real duty to consider the question seriously. Mary? Uh, just one sort of geek out legal point here. Um, you know, Bill Barr a year ago sent an unsolicited 19 page memo of his legal view of obstruction, both under the statute and under the Constitution. That was really torn to bits in this uh, in this report. And I know Michael Dreben, who's argued more than 100 cases in the Supreme Court as the deputy solicitor general, criminal cases. I'm guessing he wrote that section and I'd put him up against Bill Barr any day. And here's my final thought. Uh, this has been a special edition of the Lawfare Podcast. Uh, you know, the Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, whether it's a special edition, a regular edition, an emergency podcast, or something else. You should, especially on special editions, share the Lawfare Podcast on social media, tweet about it, share us on Facebook. You know, throw dinner parties and talk endlessly to your guests about the Lawfare Podcast. You can buy our merch at thelawfarestore.com, and you should. Our audio engineer today is Michaela Fogel, the long-suffering Michaela Fogel, who now has to edit this uh, audio file. There's no music on special editions of the Lawfare Podcast, but damn it, if there were, it would be performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.